Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Well, it's been a very long time, but we are back. Hello and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. It's my pleasure in today's programme to be talking to Dr. John Wustencroft, a great friend of mine. He's a private investor, um, has spent many years speculating in uh, metals and in metal mining companies. He's less exposed to this market than he once was. Um, John, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Dominic. And um, where should we we start? Should we start by talking about the gold price, what what you think the outlook is for gold? I think, well, that's a good place to start, maybe a good place to end, because after all, that's what we look at every day, really. We don't really think about the bigger the bigger things. But maybe we should accept, um, when we are looking at the gold price, we should actually look back and just accept how wrong we all were. Um, I know very few people who would have thought gold would have gone to somewhere in the high 1100s, I think it went to, over this summer. Um, there, the, all, all the people out there predicting the price of gold, I think nearly... All of them were, were wrong. When, when we, we, we were at a conference um, at the start of the summer, and I think we were chatting to a technician, a, a chartist, and he was saying, oh, 12.85, and I thought 12.90, and you thought 12-something. But I think we all have to accept we've been wrong, and this market shows that you, you just, in the short term, commodity prices, whether it's gold or anything else, are just almost impossible to predict. Well, I, I go back to my, I'm going to, as your homework, you have to go back and read my 2013 New Year predictions piece. And one of the pr- predictions was about the gold price. And what I said was, I think I said, you know, an average of $1,600 or whatever it was, um, and peaking at near 2000 and, and And then I put the caveat in, but that's what I want to happen. And of course, what you want to happen doesn't always happen. Therefore, the price could just as easily go to twelve hundred. And anyway, the opposite to what I wanted to happen is mm. exactly what did happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we ended our last interview when I mentioned this IMF economist at, yeah. at one of these talks, and she was predicting a gold price. I think it was sixteen sixty-five. It may. I hope not to sort of diss her. It might have yeah. been sixteen eighty-five or something. And we really have to accept. I mean, she's probably earning a very decent wage. No doubt she's got a fantastic degree and a PhD and all sorts of stuff. But she really didn't have a clue about what was about to happen in the gold market. And if the establishment, the people that think about economics, who've done all that work and research and have access to all sorts of stuff that we don't have access to, what what people are thinking, what commodity flows are, what mine costs are, everything... If, if they can't, if they don't have a clue, let's face it, she really can't claim any more to to have had a clue on where the gold price was going to go because she was yeah. predicting the price of gold to within five dollars, and we've had this massive, massive swing. Um, and Ross I think Norman the, has got one of the best track records in predicting the gold price. He mm. kind of wins or comes second in the annual gold price prediction every year, mm. and Ross was was with me saying high prices. So even Ross. <laughs> it was off the ball a bit. The only people, I mean, Jim, Jim Rogers and Mark Farber, they're very long-term investors, and they, they, they will say gold can go anywhere, the long-term will go up, and if it goes to 1100 I'll buy more. 
and that doesn't help you short term. There are other people like I think CPM Group, I think it is, who do quite good industry analyses of gold. They're maybe a bit more accurate about what their predictions are about where gold's going to go, and often they're much more pessimistic than the the punters at large. But just before this interview started, we were talking a bit about the media and what you see when when directors present and what you see when you watch stuff on on CNBC or Bloomberg. I mean, they're fantastic programmes, they're very entertaining. But when when this correction started happening in gold, you got all sorts of people coming on, making all sorts of predictions. Gold's going to go all the way back down to 600, where it started this most recent yeah, roll. Rubini, 1,000. Um, yeah, or 1,000, or 8... There's a guy, I can't remember his name, but he was predicting 800. And people come out of the woodwork when gold's going down, the people that maybe aren't fundamental gold bugs, and they... they, they They'll say, oh, it's going to 800. And when gold's going up, you get people coming out of the woodwork uh, or, or maybe who are apparent in the gold market the whole time saying it's going to two or 3,000. And it is just froth in the market, I'm afraid to say. There are, you have to, I think as investors, we have to try and choose people that we can trust. When, when the financial crisis happened, people were saying, why is Ben Bernanke still in a job? He got it so completely wrong. You should sack anybody like that. If, if that was a private company, the CEO would go. They made such a mess. Bernanke didn't go. But these gold bugs who are saying Bernanke should go because he got it so wrong, they've been so wrong on the price of gold. Maybe we should be sceptical about what they've got to say. Well, we should certainly be sceptical, but a lot of them will have lost, if their newsletter writers, they will have lost subscriptions, or they would have lost reputation, they will have lost money. You know, people do believe their own their own high, but you know, I know it because I write a magazine. You know, I write my column for Money Week, mm. and I do try and put my my bucks where my where my mouth is, so to speak. But if you're and wrong, you're wrong, aren't you? I mean, not yeah. you personally, but if if a punter's out there, a, 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 a listening to yeah. a newsletter writer, and they are spectacularly wrong, you have to think: Well, do I want to trust that person anymore? Did they show sort of humility in their predictions and accept that, like, like you said earlier this year, maybe this is what I want and this is where it's going to go? And I suppose that's the first thing I wanted to sort of talk about today is we really have to look at the sorts of people making the sorts of gold price predictions and look at their track record, look at what they've said about this crisis and maybe learn that some people have a bit more humility and maybe are going to be a bit more trustworthy. And the $3,500, $5,000 gold people, maybe it'll happen one day. Well, for sure it will if we carry on with our monetary exercise. But that's not actually going to help you survive uh, a period like we've had uh, this year where gold's all over the place and it's sort of headless chicken time running around not really knowing what's happening. Here's, here's a dynamic and it's a difficult dynamic, and it's one I find myself confronted with. But in recent articles that I've been writing for Money Week, I've tried to say, well, it could go up, and if it goes up, you know, I'd put my stop here, and I'd, you know, I'd have this as a target, but if it goes down, I'd put a stop here, and, you know, and, it, and I've been hedging my bets. And the, my editor says, you know, what you're saying is absolutely right from a trader's perspective, but it doesn't make interesting copy. And talking about $3,000 gold or $5,000 is much more interesting copy. That's, that, that's right. And just before the recent stock market correction earlier this summer, normally on Bloomberg you have JP Morgan, Goldman, you know, yeah. quality people coming on, gold, on, on Bloomberg saying, you know, buy stocks, they're still good value, you're still getting a yield, whatever. And a guy came on who was an academic. He was a professor somewhere in California. And when I saw him, I thought, what on earth is he doing on Bloomberg? Because he was saying buy stocks for the long run. This is when the S&P was basically mm. at its peak before the sort of small correction we've had. And after, I realized that no one else would probably come on that day because these guys who are in the market 
thinks things maybe have got a bit ahead of themselves. So when Bloomberg phoned them up, I'm just speculating. They say, no, I'm a bit busy today. You know, I'd rather yeah. not come on with the buy stocks or long-term message. So they phone up the B list and there's some academic some, somewhere who hasn't been on Bloomberg before who's actually very, very happy to come on and, and come out with some spiel about buying stocks for the long term. And that's maybe another thing we can look in these markets is who's saying what. And are the B listers coming out or are A listers who are people that you'd respect say, say, saying yeah. serious things about the market. And there is that dynamic. As, as, as the momentum pulls the price higher or lower, you get different people coming out, being in the, in the sort of public focus. And I think maybe that's another thing investors and traders can look at. Um, I haven't done any sort of research to say that that gives you buy and sell signals. Yeah, but no, but it's a, it's a very interesting notion. Now, let's move the conversation on. Something that interests me uh, about gold, but more so about platinum palladium, and I know this is a big theme of yours, is the fact that at current prices, most metals producers cannot produce the metal we need. And that is surely going to impact on the price of these metals in the future. It absolutely has to. And the argument is a little bit more complicated. When I first started uh, investing in heavily in palladium, which was probably 18 months or so ago, I read about this terrible structural deficit, that the amount of palladium being produced isn't enough. Russian stockpiles, Russians want to get rid of their palladium, they're coming into the market and making up the deficit. And you think, this is a fantastic structural story, because palladium cash costs are much more difficult to assert than, than, than platinum. But there's a great story there. So, so palladium's a buy, and it's still a buy, in, in, in my personal opinion. Palladium also doesn't... I've noticed, I've kind of compared palladium to the, to the CRB generally and to metals prices generally. It's kind of its own beast. It, 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 it trades on its own path, and it doesn't go with the rest of the market. It, 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 it doesn't, and I think that's maybe why it's an interesting commodity, because... There is this structural issue, and therefore there's a tendency for the price to rise to try and match supply and demand. Um, there's obviously issues with palladium and platinum, that palladium can be a substitute for platinum, and the, the ratio w will come into play. But I had a big realisation when I read some research reports earlier this year on palladium, and I found there's about a 10 million ounce stockpile of, of palladium in the world somewhere. People have stockpiled it over recent years, because in recent years there's been more production than demand. So people have been quite happy to buy it at certain prices, and they've just stuffed it in a vault somewhere. So somebody's and had the same idea as you? They've had the same idea as me, but three years earlier. And the dynamic we have in the palladium market is you have producers and consumers... And that's sort of setting the cash cost and, and setting up a, 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 a structural dynamic about the longer term price. But really, the marginal price of palladium in the market is set by when the stockpilers decide they're going to sell some. When it goes down to 650, the stockpilers say, well, you know, I'm not going to sell any this week. I'll wait for the price to go up. When it gets to 750, that's the sort of range we seem to be in. The people who've got the 10 million hour stockpiled will maybe come out and start selling some. What is what is the annual consumption of palladium? How much gets consumed? Oh, gosh, year? it's hard to tell. It's, it's around the sort of 7 million ounce mark, I okay, think. Okay, so there's and more it, than a, a year's supply. There's more stored. than a year's supply okay. of palladium out there. I don't think, I think it's fair to say people don't know exactly where it all is. But because production's been greater than, than industrial demand in the past, it's definitely somewhere. I'm not talking about palladium in catalytic converters. I'm mm. talking about true stockpiled sort of ingots or whatever, yeah. whatever palladium. So... Even though there are structural stories around there about commodities, 
because there are stockpiles and because these stockpiles are sometimes hidden, they're not on LME inventories or anything like that, that can make the story a lot more complicated. And the price of palladium can swing all over the place. It's actually quite a nice volatile trading uh, uh, metal. Platinum's a lot more um, stable in terms of price movement. There's, there's still stockpiles of pl platinum out there, uh, but it's a much more visible metal. Uh, and it's also treated much more as a precious metal compared to gold. But if we come to gold... Well, before, now, now, let me just very quickly ask you, before we come to gold, now, the issue for me with playing palladium and platinum is, one, I won't invest in South African miners, and two, I won't invest in Russian miners. Uh, actually, I've always done all right by both, but I, only because I've got lucky. And, but I just see the various intrinsic problems in both. So where does that leave you? There's a couple of dodgy Canadian ex palladium explorers, <laughs> and then, then what? Well, you, you said it, not me. Um, you, I'd, and still water's I would a say, joke, I, in my opinion. I would say three, you don't invest in miners in palladium and platinum. Okay. Because the game you're playing here is all about the fact that the cost is so close to the marginal cost of production the miners can't make money. Yeah. And you're much better taking a leveraged position on the commodity with a spread bet, financing costs for about 1.4% a year, which is incidentally why it's much harder to, say, take zinc positions where your financing costs are several percent a year. Yeah. It's harder to make money. But 1.4% is a reasonable financing cost to take on a palladium or, or platinum spread bet. I imagine the ETFs are similar charges. Um, which, but but they're, they're, they're obviously harder to leverage. But you can leverage quite nicely on a spread bet. There's massive liquidity. You can easily take positions of, I'm not obviously saying people should, but hundreds of thousands of pounds, yeah. no problem at all. Always, when I've done it, always dealt immediately. Never, never any trading issues. And I think if we are playing this sort of game, so to speak, where we are realising that metals are bounce, bouncing off, off marginal cost, it's a very, very dangerous game to play to go into the miners because if they fall below for a year... You lose all your money on the miners. You te palladium drops 10%, or platinum. Maybe some of the South African gold miners drop 50 60%. There's so much downside leverage. There's upside leverage as well. But I just think, having been lived through you know, the, the recent corrections, for me, that's, that's too risky to play. I have no idea what the, the miners are going to be in five years. I really haven't. Yeah. But I'm almost certain, for my to put my own money on the table that palladium and platinum are going to be higher and will increase by more than 1.4% per annum which is why I take those positions Okay, Lead and zinc as well Zinc has got this apparent amazing supply deficit coming up you read one research paper and it's just you know you, you go out and you're a believer you read the next one and in fact all these mines will open who knows, I, I think some of the zinc explorers might I, I don't necessarily want to name them because all the explorers have been so badly hit but some of the zinc explorers that might have a big mine that a major may wish to buy or a Chinese uh, state control company may wish to buy you know maybe those are sorts of speculations you could take but it's interesting here we're actually coming back to the speculative market yeah. don't go for the producers because they'll, they may well go bust go for a 20 cent explorer that's got a fantastic asset put a couple of you know what I do is put a couple of thousand and sit in it for five years and probably lose all my money but there may be one year when that's up four five hundred okay. percent here's here's a little uh here's a little idea just to chuck out there because lead and zinc are essentially boring metals uh they're they're a, they're a harder sell so lead and zinc mining does not attract scoundrels in the way <laughs> that gold mining does because gold mining is glamorous people confused buying a gold mining mining company with their own political views uh and so gold mining attracts scoundrels in a way that lead and zinc mining doesn't 
and therefore stupid lead and zinc explorers aren't quite as stupid as stupid gold explorers. The problem is lead and zinc explorers are often silver explorers as well. They're, yeah, they're, they're polymetallic, and, and then you get the, the silver investors coming in. Because or even more be, nuts in the cold <laughs> ones. Because they see it as a silver mine with a zero yeah. cash cost because the byproducts yeah. pay for everything else. And and these miners are chameleons. One, one, one year they'll be a silver miner, and the next year they're a zinc yeah. miner uh, with a silver byproduct, uh, all depending on where the commodity prices are going. Okay. But th- I think that's a good point. And, and again, it might be worth looking at some well run junior boring companies. Let's, you know, in my. One of my interviews with you, I was saying that boring is good. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, boring has been bad because the majors have got slaughtered too. The juniors are down 75%, the majors are down 50 So they're not good, they're just less bad than the juniors. Um, but that, I, think that's a good, I think that's a good point, and I, and I think it's, it's, it's something that we should... Uh, long term, and we're not in the stage of the market where I think you can put a couple of... You know, make a little investment and get a nice return in a few weeks. It might be a couple of years, but if you're prepared to put a bit of money away and wait a couple of years for that three-month period where everything triples or quadruples, maybe with a good zinc play, you're going to be there. But just as long back. as they've got cash, gold, gold, yeah. gold, uh, um, gold supplies. That's where you were going to come back to. Well, yes, I was going to say that if you look at the, the palladium dynamic. You think, gosh, there's this 10 million stockpile. That makes it a lot more complicated. It's no longer a supply-demand issue. It's no longer simple economics with the supply-demand curve and the price will rise because supply comes in from the stockpilers. 97% of all the gold in the world is stockpiled, and three percent, roughly 3%, I think, is produced every year. And that just makes it, in my opinion, almost impossible, which I think I alluded to in a previous interview, almost impossible to sort of talk not to within $5, but maybe to within $500 on the price of gold. Uh, so the more I think about the gold market, the more complex it becomes. And it's not like your commodities where, you know, oranges, you pick an orange off a tree, you take it to the market, who else is on the market? They go off at the end of the day, they've got to be sold. Those are simple, even those markets are probably hard. But when we're coming to these very complex markets, which you have to have multi-year horizons, if, if a if a palladium surplus has been built up over a five-year period with very long-term investors who have been taking out not secretly but just quietly into stockpile it's going to play out over a five year period I think in order to get the benefit and I think we always, we're always trying to make that next trade where we're up 10 or 20% and we feel clever and we've got to think much longer term even about palladium and platinum uh, let alone you know, looking for a bounce back in gold to say 1500 mm-hmm. OK, very good are you one of these people that believes in, uh, you know, gold and debt ratios and gold and money and all that kind of thing? They're just all part and parcel of the package. As I think we were chatting earlier and I was saying what really drives this market actually is, is a labourer 2,000 feet down in a mine, loss-making mine in South Africa. And eventually it's going to break. The mine's going to go bust or there's going to be a strike or the labour is going to actually get enough money to have a decent standard of living. I mean, South African labour is obviously working terrible, terrible conditions. Um, and we have this dynamic where there's wealthy people who are prepared to buy gold, and there's people in South Africa and other parts of the world who are prepared to mine it. And, of course, you need explosives, you need diesel and whatever. But if everything... Well, I do apologise for that. We have a slight technical problem, but we are back recording once again. So... Uh, we actually recorded the last six minutes of the interview and unfortunately it, uh, it, it, the, the, the recorder cut out. So um, we'll come back to where we were, which is 
talking about the impact of the strikes, the strikers uh, on the price of gold. That's right, yes. I was saying if the cost of the cost of everything basically reflects the cost of the labour needed to produce it, whether it's diesel or explosives or people actually on the mine face. Diesel needs explorers to go out and find oil and convert it and everything. And if robots did all that and we just sat back, everything would be free because we wouldn't have to do any work. But of course, we wouldn't be able to afford it because we won't have any money. And, and the, the, the point really is, is these labourers eventually will break. Labourers in South Africa work under terrible conditions. They'll break. They'll want more money, as, as it seems to be happening now. And South Africa eventually will have to be marginalised out of the gold-producing market because the mines can't make money even when you pay the labourers a pittance. And then we'll move on to the next market. And the more one thinks about these markets, the more complicated they become. It's not just simple supply-demand sort of stuff that you learn in basic economics. The markets are incredibly complicated. And um, the, the dynamic between the people that have got the money, that are buying the gold and what they're prepared to pay, and the people that basically don't have the money and have to work 3,000 feet down or whatever in a mine, is so hard to predict what's going to happen in the future. In the long term, I'm confident about platinum, palladium and gold prices, unless we have some sort of quantum adjustment because we find a replacement for catalytic converters or whatever. But with gold, I'm confident about the price. But in the short term, with all these things playing out like we have in South Africa, who, who can predict what the price will be in six months or a year? Massive strikes, people being killed, like we had a year ago when, when there were the sort of platinum strikes. What, what, would, what would happen to the gold price then? Unions agree, a bit of deflation in some gold-producing countries. What would happen? The short term, we, ju- we just can't tell. We talked about there being some uh, incipient crises uh, that... And, and because of these crises, therefore, we should own gold. Um, you, you, know, you, you used the expression, uh, buy gold when you can, not when you need it. Yes, I, I think you can always convert gold into money. At any time, you can always convert gold to money, anywhere in the world, in fact. You can't always convert money into gold. And when you actually want to, normally it's too late. In Cyprus, the guy that suddenly decided he was a bit unhappy about what's happening in Cyprus and went to buy out loads of gold the day before it all went wrong, he didn't get his gold. The Indians who tried to buy gold this summer, there were import restrictions on gold and I think a 10% tax on gold. I can't remember. I don't even know it was even higher. They couldn't buy gold when they wanted it. The Indians that bought gold when they didn't need it, as Indians always have, or, or the likes of me and you who bought gold years ago when we didn't need it uh, it was easy to buy it's obviously still easy to buy gold in the west now but let's not forget one in seven people in the world are Indian one in seven people in the world have benefited by owning gold this summer they've seen their currency basically collapse well over 20% against the dollar I think and they haven't suffered the commensurate loss of wealth you would see if that happened in any other country in such a short period uh, where I don't know if you remember, but when the pound started devaluing um, in the in the recent financial crisis, I remember buying a shower, and I went along to the uh, and said I'll buy that shower, and they said no, this is wrong, this is six hundred pounds, it's not six hundred quid, it's four hundred, and they phoned up, uh, and it was an Irish shower company, and they said no, no, it's six hundred, and everyone had just put the prices up, it might have gone from four fifty to six or something, maybe VAT was included, I don't know, but the the point is is that. 
currency collapses or currency depreciations affect people unless you're holding something that isn't affected by that and Indians and Cypriots and going back in history Argentinians and Germans and Russians and Chinese probably almost everywhere in the world people have benefited at some stage by holding gold and you buy the gold when you don't need it and when you do need to buy it it's probably too hard to buy. Um, the incipient crises uh, that we, we've got something going on in the emerging markets we, we've got rising interest rates uh, we've got potential war in Syria um, you seem to think that central bankers have got lucky with interest rates I'm not as educated and as knowledgeable as people who are in daily communication with central bankers but I feel that they're steering a boat and it's going in the right direction and they don't know that the connection between the wheel and the rudder has been broken and one day they'll be caught out markets we live in a, a the markets are obviously a bit rigged at the moment well they're not a bit rigged they're completely rigged in the sense of interest rates being set and so far governments have got away with it and no one can say they haven't got away with it. they clearly have so far but eventually if you lose faith if the market loses faith in your currency or your central bank which has happened many many times in the past including in britain then things will happen and rates will have to rise to defend the currency. When Britain left the ERM in 91, 92, whenever it was, I can't remember, um, rates went up very temporarily to, I think, 12%. 16, I think. 16. Um, no, I, think, I think they might even have gone up to 20 in I think one day. I think but they, were, but they, were only, they went to 16, it was reverted within the hour or something. But rates had to rise to protect the currency. And we're feeling quite smug at the moment. You're in London and you own a house, you're feeling smug. If you've got money and a FTSE tracker, or you've got one of Woodford's funds, investing, Invesco Perpetual, you're feeling smug because they're up 20% in the last year. If you've got a smaller company's fund, you're feeling smug. Even though earnings haven't risen, there's a general feeling that we're, round, we're turning the corner and we're feeling smug again. But fundamentally, look at debt levels, uh, look at um, margin debt on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, look at what's happening to uh, affordability ratios in housing. Housing causes terrible crises again and again and again. Our government seems to be supporting yet another one with this help to buy scheme. We're, we're, we're turning the corner now and we're, we're steering into another crisis. And I think the way our markets seem to work, is there any number of incipient crises out there? There is Syria, of course. There is uh, the potential of something else flaring up in the Middle East, in Egypt, for example. We do have a potential interest rate problem on our hands. Europe could still collapse. There may be a collapse in the yen in Japan. But there's also other incipient crises that we're just not aware of. At the start of this year, one, I think it might have even been Mark Mobius, who I respect a lot, was saying this is going to be a good year for emerging markets. And look what's happened to emerging markets. And from them being a darling, suddenly everybody's saying, oh, they've got all these structural problems, there's capital flight. Oh, yes, of course, we all saw this coming months ago. Well, of course, nobody saw it coming months ago. The only people you'll get on Bloomberg now, the people that didn't see it coming, that want to try and convince themselves and everybody else that they, they think it did. I mean, incidentally, Mark Mobius came on Bloomberg saying, I think the worst is over and we're, going, we're heading into good times again. So crises happen. The, the markets are unstable and... When we think everything is in control, something hits us out of nowhere and suddenly we're all thinking, well, actually, I should be owning some gold again or why am I so over, so overexposed to uh, retailers or, or, or the S&P was clearly overvalued on its CAPE ratio. Why didn't I sell 20% of my S&P? At the moment, people aren't doing that. 
and obviously now's the time to do it before in my opinion other people might be forced to do it on a margin call for example can you can you really see rates rising i mean i know they have to eventually but if if people can't see rates rising surely as a contrarian that is a sign that they probably will that that something will happen that they'll hit you 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 just do not know the future if if rates at half a percent were good for the economy why is it for 400 years they were never at half percent rates have to be there for a reason interest rates exist the way the monetary system ex- you know it exists for a I'm reason trying to think of an answer to that question reason. so 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 but but if if the economy because they were because they were never controlled by governments in the same way that they are now well, the Bank of England only became independent in 1997. Yeah. And it only became um, uh, a state institution, I think, in 1945. So before 1945, the Bank of England could basically do what it liked. But why did it do that? Because that's what suited the environment at the time. Rates, cu- rates have to rise to, to put stops on an overheating economy or they have to rise to defend a currency. And sometimes when people look at rates, they don't think that they rise for two reasons. They rise because you don't have any faith in the currency and you have to be given a reward for holding it, or they rise because the economy is doing really well and, they, and the currency has to be cooled down. And places like Brazil, you know, it seems that to me, I'm not sort of a professional economist, but the rates have sort of flipped over from having high rates to try and cool a very strong economy to having high rates to try and encourage people to put money into Brazil because the real's collapsing. So... The Brazilians aren't really in control of their rates. They wouldn't. I think it's thirteen percent in Brazil. I don't know, but they're not in control of their rates. India isn't in control of its rates. Huge numbers of countries in the world aren't in control of their rates. So there's so something so special about Britain. Perhaps the US is the world's reserve currency. But what is so special about our country that we feel we're in control of our rates when most of the time most countries aren't? Well, I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, John, uh, any, it'd be, it'd been a real pleasure talking to you, and I apologise for having to re-record the last five minutes of that interview. Is there, is there anything else you wanted to add? Or well, we... well, uh, we've talked about the impossibility of predicting the price of gold, and so you know, it's, pretty, it. it's pretty clear that only a fool would do that. So I'll go first. <laughs> 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 I think uh, fourteen hundred to sixteen hundred. I just feel gold is settling around the fourteen hundred. People know in the sort of twelve hundred range, miners are going to start going bust. 1600 looks a bit rich to me i'm not a technical person it's just a gut feeling if gold gets to 1600 i think i'll probably sell some i um, think the one year average is at about 1475 at the minute if, so. if, if if it gets down to 1180 i'll definitely buy or 11 whatever it got to i'll buy 1400 i'm a bit agnostic about it 1500 probably the same um, and so that's that's where i feel it'll probably bounce around for a while until the next crisis 1520 to 1550, as I see it, is a huge, huge barrier of resistance. That was support for like two years. I think it retested that level seven times before it finally went through. It's going to have to take something pretty special to get through 1520 to 1550. I think the people that took gold below 1520 knew they were thinking exactly what you thought. They knew if they could pull it significantly below 1520, it would be free fall. And so there may be people thinking if they can push it significantly above 1520, because everybody's thinking what you're thinking on sort of the charts level, I agree, yeah. then you know there's some significant upside there. These games are played by much bigger players than me or you with our spread bets or yeah. sovereigns. <laughs> and 
that's I'm why I'm going to sell three sovereigns <laughs> and move the market. <laughs> um, and so the market is set by bigger players than us, and they, the markets are played by people. People play volatility. It's their job. That's part of an efficient market. I'm not. No one. When I was talking to Ross Norman about what happened. Uh, with this crash, I was saying, but surely there's insider trading. And he was, no, of course, who cares? You know, markets are here for the long run. If somebody tries to mess around with the market in the short term because gold's clearly got some technical or structural problems with the price and it needs to clear out some weak holders and bring some new long term, that's fine, that's healthy, that's good. These are almost Ross Norman's words. And I want to sort of go running to somebody in the authority to say, it's not fair that somebody's taken my gold price down because a hedge fund came in and sold 20 billion of gold or whatever and ross has got a you know he's got a better opinion which is let them play with the market because i'm here for the long term very good well john uh, it's a real pleasure talking to you if anyone wants to get in touch or follow your work or uh, if there's an imf economist predicting the price of gold 18 months out within a price of five dollars go to that talk and i'll be in the audience asking questions <laughs> very good well dr john wustencroft thank you very much cheers Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 